Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hey, Sammy. Hey, Monica. Monica, what is on your mind today? Oh, gosh. So have you ever had a moment where you're talking with a patient and you realize that something you thought you covered or you educated on, they didn't receive? Yes. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Yeah. And it's such a agonizing moment, such a facepalm moment. So I had one recently and I would love to share the case and then talk about how we could do patient education better. Awesome. This patient I saw recently, he was coming in for groin pain and on assessment, we found that it was reproduced with hip flexion, fader, and seemed like a femoral impingement type of issue. So we started treatment. He's reporting less pain, better function each time we meet for four visits. On visit four, we did a reassessment. We found that everything was getting better. His pain was getting less, even if he still had some. And I thought we are headed in a great direction. I was really trying to focus on more of a comprehensive view of pain and not getting stuck into the impingement diagnosis, even though that's the way I was thinking of it clinically. So I had sent him a photo questionnaire, which is a computer automated test, which incorporates the LEFS. So he completes the questionnaire between the fourth and the fifth visit, and I see him visit five, and I realize that his score has gotten worse. And I'm shocked because everything we did indicated that he was getting better. So I'm going through line by line to see what changed. And I found that he rated light activities around the house as a little bit of difficult on the reassessment. Originally, he had said no difficulty. So I'm scratching my head. Why did it get harder? And I asked him about it. And he said that he's been cautious with all his day-to-day activities that require hip flexion or hip twisting and bending over because he's tall and he doesn't want to compress or aggravate his groin pain. So for example, he was trying to stay upright while doing the dishes. And he said, I'm scared of bending Mm. forward, flexing my hip because that's what makes my symptoms worse. I was flabbergasted (laughs) internally because I thought I was leading us away from that direction and not trying to blame it on a mechanical fault. And even though I didn't have a very biomechanical approach to it, I did emphasize what reproduced his symptoms because I was trying to get away from a diagnosis of the head of your femur is not moving well, etc., And I was focusing on symptom reproduction. And I realized that by focusing on symptom reproduction, (laughs) he was smart enough to say, okay, hip flexion makes my hip worse. I can't do that. Okay. And I thought, oh, damn, (laughs) damn, here I am basically encouraging fear avoidance. So 
After realizing that's what happened, I asked him to tell me more about the activities he was doing and what his concern was. And it really boiled down to the fact that he's so tall that he will have to flex his hip more to do these activities. And finally, I said something along the lines of, I see how you got that impression from what we did together. And initially, when you have pain, it makes sense to avoid or limit those activities for a short period of time to start making progress, which is what we did. And at this point, your pain has gotten better. Everything has improved from reassessment. And I think it's time that we start adding those things back in gradually because I want you to be able to bend forward and not worry about it. And I want you to just be able to live life freely. And thankfully, that resonated with him. He said, okay, that makes sense to me. We'll work on it gradually. And so we did introduce those activities. I think we did a hip flexion-based exercise and then also a disclaimer that, hey, it's okay for you to go out and try it, even if it's within that zero to three pain range. It's okay. Try new things. And that got me thinking about patient education and (laughs) the, the way we communicate with people is so important. This is a soapbox moment for me because in so many ways, I have been a provider who has lectured people. I was so excited about pelvic health when I first started and going through residency that the more I learned, the more I wanted to share with people. And now I look back and I cringe because Mm. in some cases, I was more lecturing them. I cringe because I wasn't doing a couple steps that now I find essential to patient education. Actually, that we find essential, Sammy and I, we've both talked about these and we share the same passion here. I don't think we want to lecture our patients and then have these moments where they're saying, hey, what you told me doesn't make sense to me anymore. Or what you told me, I'm totally disregarding. And the frustration that brings us as providers is I thought we talked about this and you haven't implemented any of it. What's up with that? I totally agree with you there. And I love that you're using the word lecturing because all of us can think of a time where we had a professor in college or some teacher in school who would stand up there and talk and talk and talk and lecture. And meanwhile, we're sitting there scratching our heads, confused, not understanding the thread of what this person's saying and not having a good experience as a learner. So I think we've all been there, right? And so I think that the key in your language there is we don't want to be a lecturer. We want to be an educator. And that's the key to patient education. When I think about this role that we have as educators, what does an educator do? Their entire goal is to have their audience or their learners understand the topic. And Mm -hmm. so some keys to that that I think we we can put into a framework today and go through step by step would be the first one is that you've got to know where your audience is coming from. First of all, we want to know what is their knowledge base? What do they already know about this thing? One of the things that I think is super helpful to begin with is asking a question about their knowledge. And we've said this before, but what do you know about blah? What do you know about hip impingement? What do you know about pelvic organ prolapse? What do you know? Start there. Yes, that is probably the cornerstone of being able to communicate with your patient and collaborate rather than lecturing them. So asking what you know, and it doesn't even have to be diagnosis specific. 
if I'm trying to avoid a biomechanical diagnosis explanation, I will say, what do you know about the causes of groin pain? What do you know about the causes of pain with sex? Because sometimes a diagnosis is already so mechanical online. Shoulder impingement is a great example. Like, uh, man, if we go around shoulder impingement, you're boxing yourself in there. Like, how do you explain shoulder impingement without explaining literal impingement? You can. It takes more work. And if they're not attached to that diagnosis already... I think especially if someone sees you direct access, I love to keep it more open-ended so that way I can set the stage for the different pieces of the pie, i.e. loading model, biopsychosocial models. Great, great point. We can also ask about patients' understanding of their body and just general function too. What do you know about the role that the pelvic floor plays? What do you know about pelvic floor exercise? And if they come back and they're having pelvic pain and pain with sex and they come back and tell you, I know that you're supposed to do 10,000 Kegels a day, you can go, okay, that's an easy thing for me to address over time with patient education. It's important to uncover some of those ideas or beliefs about the anatomy, about the causes of their pain. And if they come in saying, I have a diagnosis of arthritis, then you can get into that model of what does that diagnosis mean to you? And about treatment. Ask them what they know about different types of treatment, whether it's a medical treatment. Sometimes it's indicated for us to discuss that. PT treatment, adjunct treatments. This makes me think back to a patient that I had during residency that actually you shadowed, Monica, so you'll remember this person probably. But in regards to treatment, I had this patient who was having fecal incontinence and She was having a lot of liquid stool, really loose stools, and I was instantly like, okay, we need to talk about fiber. We need to talk about your fiber intake. I gave her all this great education on fiber. Actually, it was a great lecture on fiber. Let's put it that way. (laughs) But she pauses at the end and goes, well, I'm already going to the bathroom so much. Won't eating more fiber make me poop more? And I was like, oop, missed a key point there, right? (laughs) She's thinking that... Fiber equals I'm going more, not fiber is going to change my stool consistency. And if I had paused to assess what do you know about fiber and she told me, well, fiber makes you poop more, I can go, is it okay if I share some information with you about what fiber does in our body? And then we can go from there. And instead of me wasting all this time where she's going, that's not going to work for me in her head because she's thinking that's not right. I can get more buy-in and she can be a part of the process a little bit better. I do remember her. She was super sweet. And don't worry, everyone listening, it ended very well. And what you highlighted in that story is the next step that is essential to collaborative, I'll say counseling rather than education. You asked permission to share what you know. Because when someone says, what I know is blank, and you say, well, what the research shows is da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you see how that kind of, I literally just reacted to that. I was like, don't tell me what to do, Monica. Exactly. That's perfect. (laughs) Everyone has resistance to that. People don't love to be told what to do. And so there's an instant resistance to, 
actually, did you know? Yeah. It's nobody likes to be corrected. So I'm right there with you. Even without the attitude, I'll say, because for a while I thought I was doing it with a lot of compassion and love, but I think no matter how you say it, when you just jump into a correction or even a redirection, the natural response is defensiveness and resistance. So we can avoid that by saying, thank you for sharing or okay, no worries when they say, I don't know anything. And we can say, is it okay if I share with you what I know about blank, that treatment, that diagnosis, the causes of pain, the pelvic floor function, the way the GI system works, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when I ask them their permission, I've never had a person tell me, no, I'm not interested in that. I just haven't. I haven't I've, I've been asking a lot of people and nobody has ever been like, no. If anything, they're like, yeah, go ahead. Please tell me. And I'm like, okay, great. So again, we're inviting ourselves into the conversation. We're asking for permission, which may seem weird to ask for permission to educate someone. It really does go over much better. Oh, for sure. It's a game changer. I felt really awkward asking the first couple times because aren't they here to see me for this thing? Shouldn't I just dive into my tirade about fiber or whatever it is that I'm talking about? But it's amazing how much more receptive people seem when you ask permission. So even though they're here to see you as the expert, quote unquote, I think it's still so important to be humble and and ask permission to come into their space like that. So I'm right there with you. It's really interesting how it changes the vibe of the appointment. Going off of that, we may be bumping against long-held beliefs about their body, about function, about diagnoses, about what treatments do and don't work for certain conditions. And I think One of the ways I struggled with education is I thought people were a blank slate that I was putting information Mm -hmm. into. Yes. And what I forgot is that people have their own lived experience and they may have had a parent who had the same condition and it didn't go well and they needed surgery. Or they may have gone online and seen these chat rooms where everybody is complaining about how terrible this condition is and how they haven't gotten better and nothing has helped them. And we need to be sensitive to their lived experience, which is the next point. Be mindful of their responses to what you're sharing. Even if you ask permission, even if you already gauge their interest, they may still have a skeptical reaction. I'm going to go back to this lecturer versus educator idea here, which is I have this picture in my mind of somebody who's lecturing at an audience and they're all staring with blank faces, scratching their heads, looking totally stressed and confused versus that audience who looks excited, engaged, is asking thoughtful questions. You can tell when somebody is understanding and receptive to your message. And that requires us to be observant. And in this interaction, we cannot sit there and lecture and be completely blind to their responses to your point. We can't just ignore that because you'll start to observe people shifting around in their seats. They're a little uncomfortable with what you're saying. They're maybe giving you some statements that seem like a little bit of pushback. And I think it's important to explore that because like you say, they have lived experience that may contradict everything that you're saying. And we're not going to get anywhere if we just butt up against that. 
Yeah, and it's normal to get some skepticism. I actually think it leads to a more productive conversation. I used to take things pretty personally, not against the patient, but if somebody didn't respond or learn from my patient (laughs) education, I was like, oh my God, what is it? Did I not do a good enough job? Do they just not care? And what I realized is it comes back to their beliefs and 9.9 times out of 10, it is not really related to me. Maybe in the past, it's been related to how I shared the information because I wasn't asking permission, gauging knowledge. But most of the time, their resistance is pretty well-founded. They have a piece of info that we just haven't covered yet, to your point, about the patient with the pooping thing. And when we share what we think is the correct information, they may still want to share, well, oh, interesting. What I thought was that fiber does this. And sometimes they're just saying it to be like, huh, I recognize that is now wrong. Other times they're saying it because they need more information. They may still not be bought into whatever we're explaining. If you're reassessing your patient and you're really monitoring their response as you have patient education conversations, then you'll be able to adjust. Sometimes people need a diagram. Sometimes they need a 3D model for it to make sense. Sometimes you need to write it out for them or maybe give them a handout that they can review and process later because not everyone's going to process everything in the moment and they need to sit with it. Or sometimes we're offering information that really shakes up what they knew to be true. We may be rearranging things that they've believed for years, for decades, things that they thought were no longer possible for them. And so rightfully so, they need to have their own emotional reaction to it. They need to have their own space to process it, whether that's to grieve for the fact that they lost years of their life believing something that is not true, like they have a small bladder, (laughs) they don't, (laughs) Um, or whatever else it is. But I always thought that education is going to fix the patient, and I didn't realize that the patient will have their own reaction to the information, whether it's correct or not. People have reactions to incorrect information they find online. They're going to have reactions to correct information, even if provided by us. And really, all we need to do is hold space for that. Definitely. One of my favorite questions to ask after I've introduced a patient education topic or a statement is, what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? Does it work for your life to drink more water? Do you think that makes sense for you? And then they can go, oh, no, because I I have a small bladder. And so wouldn't drinking more water be just overflowing my bladder all the time? And you can start to pick apart that. That's a much more engaged patient than just blazing on through, ignoring this resistance that you both clearly feel. And I think checking in, going slow and pausing and saying, what do you think about this is super important. Yeah. And not trying to do it all in one day. Gosh, what a rookie mistake. I was like, 15 years of chronic pain and urgency. (laughs) Don't worry. I'm going to explain the pelvic floor muscles and urge suppression and bladder habits and you'll be good to go. And (laughs) been there. Oh oh my gosh, have I done that? Still there sometimes. (laughs) Still there sometimes, right? It's go slower than you probably think you need to. 
And Mm -hmm. if someone wants you to go faster, you can pick up on that again if you're mindful. But I would say most of the time, we have so much information and we have this mastery bias. We think it's simple because we've spent one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years learning this stuff. We just know it like the back of our hands. And people may be lacking such a basic foundation of health-related knowledge that this doesn't make any sense. You're trying to speak Latin to them. They don't know Latin. They, they don't have maybe a lot of health literacy or body literacy. And we can take our time with it. And I would say the slower and more deliberate you are in setting up your building blocks of knowledge, the easier the experience is on everyone. It's easier on you because you're not trying to explain everything under the sun. It's easier on them because they have little things to work on. And your follow-up sessions become easier too because you don't have to go back to three things after your eval and try to explain all three of them. You can just say, okay, so you practice that first part of the first technique. It went well. So the next part of what we do is this. Probably for this reason, what do you think of that, etc.? That is so much more of a flow rather than Niagara Falls of information. Fill their cup slow. See what their cup can handle. You can even ask them something like, what did you take away from today's session? Mm. And it's amazing as a question. In fact, I think it can pretty regularly be brought into my practice because if they can explain what I talked about in their own words, then that was truly counseling and education. And if they can't explain it and I need to correct them, that was not education. That was lecturing. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. It's a great check-in mechanism for you and it may help you find your own pitfalls of what exactly in this process we're describing you've missed. I love that question. And I also like to ask it, not just at the end of the evaluation or at the end of a session, but also, let's say, for example, that I've seen somebody for the initial eval, I've explained to them what I think is going on, and then they come back for the second visit. My first question is, what did you take from last time? Mm, Like revisiting it. That's great. Revisiting it. What were your questions? What came up for you? And then throughout the session, I'm also framing things in the framework of, as we discussed last time, your pelvic floor has some overactivity. This stretch is going to be working specifically on that pelvic floor overactivity to help with that pain that you're having during sex. So it's always within that educational framework of, we've talked about this thing, this is the overarching theme of what's going on with you, and then here's why this thing might help. And so that way it's in a framework, it's in context, it makes sense. And you're not just being like the first visit, by the way, your pelvic floor is overactive and then not really getting into it again. Yep, absolutely. Anne-Marie said it on her episode, do not drop a diagnosis on someone Oh yeah. if you do not have the time mm-hmm. to discuss that diagnosis. Just do not do it. I think that's true of any education. Like you say, not just even about diagnoses, but even about treatments, even about the mechanism of their pain, about anything. If it's a new topic that you haven't discussed before, go slow 
check for understanding, go through all of the things that you need to do to be a good educator and not just a lecturer. Because I think a lot of us tend to throw in these little like five minute chunks of patient education when we're just lecturing at somebody about a technique really quick and not taking the time to see if they've processed it. Slowness is great and making sure you have the time for what you want to do. I used to think that, oh, well, I'm teaching somebody about dilators. And how long does it take to explain what a dilator is, how to insert it, blah, blah, blah. It should take me 15 minutes. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) No, it did not. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's so much built into that. So I think that we we need to really overestimate how much time it's going to take us to do any educational intervention. Because like you say, we have this mastery bias and we need to make sure that they have the basic knowledge base to understand what we're saying giving them the education, checking in and reassessing their knowledge, and then continually revisiting it. So those are steps in my mind, but we got to take that time. I think time is one of the biggest things in patient education. And I think this is the cornerstone of great relationship building and true patient change. Because even when I've used a biomechanical model and patients got better, I think the fact of the matter is I was still following this framework. And I was giving them information that matched what they believed. And because there was a match and it made sense to them, they had the buy-in. And once they have the buy-in, they maybe expect the treatment to work. And when they expect the treatment to work, we know that it's more likely to provide benefit, even if it's through placebo. And if they're starting to see benefit, that's motivating. And if they're starting to get motivated, now they may not come to depend on us. This is happening even when you're not thinking about it but you think about it when it doesn't go well. The process is the same. There's got to be a match. I think we've all had that patient who also doesn't want to listen to what we say because they just don't want to believe it. It may have consequences for their life. If I believe that I can actually affect my chronic pain and live life, then I will have to give up something. I will have to reclaim my life. Even something like that can hold people back from hearing what they want. And I think we've all had a patient who wanted us to tell them what they wanted to hear. They wanted to know that their pelvic floor was overactive and not that their nervous system was overstimulated and that they would have to make major changes in their life to see a reduction in pelvic pain. We've all had that person. We've been like, oh, this is not going to go so well, especially (laughs) if I just lecture you. I think when we approach this with curiosity, with intrigue, with mindfulness of our own reactions and their reactions, then we can have amazing conversations, mind-blowing aha moments where we see people shifting what they believe, becoming more autonomous, empowering them, all the things that are so fueling, so energizing for me. We can see all of those come to life. Definitely. And my takeaway here is notice the vibe you get after your patient education. If you feel like you just talked at them and you feel that sense of being a lecturer, you probably miss the mark a little bit. It's all right. Try again next time. But if you feel like you taught somebody something in a way where they had the the interest and the buy-in and the collaboration, you probably did something really remarkable and got them to understand what you're trying to educate them on a lot deeper. So notice yourself, notice your own reactions, observe your patients. I think it's really all about being the educator and not the lecturer. Yes. 
All right, Sammy, this has been awesome. Thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode. If you like what we put out, please subscribe on your favorite platform. Leave us a review. Follow along on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and on Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. And we will see you next week. Stay conscious, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.